Okay, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Tonight was cookie night. We passed out cookies, and y'all were way more loud in here. Did you notice that? <laughs> See what sugar does to people? So I appreciate you coming out tonight for session number three. And let me say this because I'll forget it uh, at the end. But uh, I just uh, finished session number four uh, this morning. And uh, don't miss next week. All right, just don't miss next week. That's, that's what I'll say about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, tonight what I've been praying in every one of these sessions, that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures. For you told us, Lord, that uh, eternal life is to know you, the one true God, and to know Jesus whom you have sent. So, Father, we recognize that we can't know Jesus without the word. And if we know Jesus through the word, through the spirit, we know the Father. And we are one with each other. So tonight, reveal yourself to us, Lord. Give us the joy of our salvation. Um, give us hope and endurance in a world that seems to be spiraling out of control. And make us strong and very courageous. Prepare us for that which is coming. And make your church, your bride, ready for the wedding. In Jesus' name, amen. These first five sessions in our 13-part series are based on a book by Randy Alcorn that I read actually several years ago. Tonight, we're going to ask the question, can you really know that you're going to heaven? Now, I've had a debate with a lot of people over the years that, that uh, disagree with me on this tonight, and I'm going to show you why I take the position that I do, and the position is yes, you can, and yes, you should, and I'm going to show you in the scriptures why I take that position. For the past two weeks, we've been focusing on the glory and the wonder of heaven. We've even taken some time to peer into the awful darkness of hell, which is heaven's awful alternative, which even makes heaven look better. One of the things you do is you show hell at least a glimpse to show how good heaven looks. It looks really good. And before we get started in our main question tonight, I want to tell you the absolutely best, 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 best thing about heaven. Now, I've told you that I believe heaven's going to be much like the Garden of Eden before the curse. On the new heaven and in the new earth, it's going to be a, a, a paradise, and it's going to be much like what we imagine the original Garden of Eden before sin. But do you know what Eden's greatest attraction was? God. Can you just, you know, I got goosebumps when I said that, that God is there. In Genesis 3, 8, it says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And this is post sin, okay? So they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So can you imagine hearing God coming through your neighborhood in the cool of the day? What, what that would be like, that the physical manifest presence of God is there. Not, 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 a, not a whisper, not a wind, not a smoke, not a fire, but the glorious presence of God next to you. And you're not having to hide, and you don't have to run and get behind a tree. What kind of a world would it be if God was there? That's what they call heaven. When God is here, it'll be called heaven. 
There's a song, some of you may know, your presence is heaven to me. So wherever, we touched on this last week, wherever God's at is really where heaven's at. It really won't matter the geographical location. It's wherever he's at. The Bible tells us that one day things will be like they used to be in the garden before sin. In Revelation 21, here's where we get that. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why do we need a new one? For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now let's make it clear. He's talking about everything we know today of the physical realm of existence is going to disappear. So why does he tell us, do not store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal? Because it's all going to disappear. Your entire bank account, if your bank account's on this, everything that you took, worked so hard to possess, it's going to disappear. In fact, uh, that's kind of going to be a teaser about Sunday's sermon. We're going to deal a little bit about, about the something that's going to, that's so relevant today is going to one day in a second, in one hour, the Bible says, in one hour, we'll be totally gone. Something that the world has built itself on will be in one hour gone. So I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. And, and by the way, this is Revelation 21. So this is after the millennial kingdom. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So God's going to let down on the new earth a new Jerusalem. Stay with me. So God's going to bring, he's created this new Jerusalem. It, it, the place where he, his, he dwells. He's going he's gonna to bring it down to the new earth. To the new earth. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Now, finally, the dwelling of God is with men. That's why I say it's going back to the garden. You ever think of it like this? Um, if I study the Bible... If I go from Genesis to Revelation, here's what I see. Everything goes back to where it started. It looks like a 6,000-year circle, but it starts in the garden, man and God. Comes back to the garden, man and God. Just think about it. So, now the dwelling of God is with man and he, God, will live with them, us. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and he'll, he'll be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death. Somebody say hallelujah. No more death. Funeral home business is bankrupt. No more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. The old order of things. Everything you ever knew about human life on planet earth is gone. It is passed away. Now, there's something, I didn't put it in the notes, but if you want to write this down, it's in Revelation 22. It's the first three verses. And, and I want to tell you something. You're not going to be able to comprehend it any more than I, I can. 
But during the millennial reign of Christ, during the thousand year reign of Christ, it looks like the only um, God, part of the Godhead that is on the earth reigning is Jesus in Jerusalem. The Father is still in heaven. When the new heaven and the new earth comes, and when the holy city of Jerusalem comes to the earth, read the first three verses of Revelation 22. And what you will see is that the throne of the Father and the throne of the Son will both be there. The Father and the Son both will be on the new earth when the new Jerusalem comes in. It says it twice in three verses. So, during the millennial reign of Christ, it's Jesus reigning in Jerusalem, the Father still in heaven. But then when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, the Father comes here. Two thrones. Wow, 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 wow. He who was seated on the throne said what? I'm making everything new. We go, there's the circle. It's a 6,000 year. You get down here, everything starts all over. I'm making every, everything means everything. And then write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I'll ask the audience tonight, do you believe that? Do you believe that his plan for you is to bring you to a place where he will recreate the universe? He will, you will be in an eternal body, and, and everything will start all over. That next week is important for you to connect this, the topic next week. Sometimes people get so excited about the wonder and amazement of heaven that they forget that the best thing about heaven, God will be there all the time, face to face on the new earth. Now, uh, Sammy and I always have this discussion, and uh, neither one of us know the answer, is uh, the Bible says that no one has ever seen the Father, nor will they ever be able to see the Father. And, and Jesus says that the Father is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That he's a spirit. That he, he's not a man. Um, so will we be able to see his face? The Father's face on the new earth? I don't know. I think so. But I don't know. Uh, I believe in the authority of scripture which says no one has ever seen him nor ever will. Does that mean in this state? in this state, in the flesh? Or does that mean forever? And could anyone ever look at his face and in the eternal kingdom? Now, my opinion, is, for what it's worth, is yes. I think we will look upon the glory of God, what that face would look like. He's not a man. He's not a man. He's, he's a spirit. Um, and I know, the, right? Why don't you just get me all confused when we start tonight? But the biggest attraction in the Garden of Eden in heaven is God Himself. Everything else is going to pale in comparison. Now, listen, I have in my mind, and I'm sure you do too, what the new earth will look like. You know, and, and that blows my mind. But if I take the, the new creation and put God over here, I the one that's going to blow you away is the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. The radiance of God. Here's a scale that I always like to use. If he can breathe the sun, our sun up in the sky, the red, the red ball, 
If he can breathe that out of his mouth, how big is he? How incredible is he? And he's going to be in your neighborhood? And you're going to be in his neighborhood? Dwelling in the same place? When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost the ability to dwell in the Shekinah glory of God. So when I say the word Shekinah, does everybody know what I'm talking about? Basically, it's the glorious presence of God. That's just a Hebrew word for the glorious presence of God. Um, so Adam and Eve were in the, in the Shekinah glory until sin, and suddenly they couldn't experience the Shekinah glory of God. Why? Because sin and God's glory cannot be together. So I often think when he made them leave the garden, he saved their life. Because if they stayed next to him, his holiness would have killed them because they were sinful and they were flesh. So it almost looks cruel that he made them leave the garden, but it isn't cruel at all. They couldn't survive his holiness. So they had to, there had to be a, a separation between the holy God and the unholy man and woman. So they lost that Shekinah glory. In the time of Moses, and the tabernacle, all the way through the permanent temple built by King Solomon. God once again allowed his Shekinah glory to dwell with man behind the curtain in the most holy place, even though it was nothing like the presence he offered to Adam and Eve. So do you understand there's a major event that takes place um, between Adam and Eve and they have to leave the garden and he puts up flaming swords at the gate and he, he separates man from his Shekinah presence and all the way up to the time of Moses when Moses comes out of Egypt man had some kind of a connection to God God would communicate he communicated with Noah he communicated with, with uh, Abraham Isaac Jacob but um, and, and Abraham saw the backside, remember? He saw the backside. He said, uh, show me your glory. And God passed by and let him see him from the back. And they saw a pillar of cloud and they saw a pillar of fire. So, so it's not like there weren't any events. But what made it really big? When, when God brings Israel under Moses out of Egypt, it's, it's, this, it's this single event. And it connects to this timeline, the story. He's going to move back into their neighborhood. He had never done that since the garden. So he had them build that tent, the tabernacle, and he had them do it just exactly right. And they had certain things in certain places. And there's this curtain and, and the glory of God that left Adam and Eve came and went behind the curtain. Do you understand that, how big that was? That's, that's a long time between Adam and Eve and Moses. That's a long time. And now he's come back. In the time of Ezekiel, 800 years after Moses, God's Shekinah glory departed from the temple, and it is a horrible scene. So get, get the sequence. God is with Adam and Eve. He, he separates himself. It's not the same until time of Moses, builds a tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God comes back. 
lives behind the veil in the, in the tabernacle. Solomon builds the temple. He moves into the temple. The Shekinah glory is in the temple, the, the real building there in Jerusalem. And, and now you go to Ezekiel. Um, he's going to leave. He, he's going to leave again. And, and how sad is this story? Ezekiel 10, it says, The glory, the Shekinah glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim, that's angels, angelic beings, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Now, what's the threshold? The threshold's the doorway. The cloud filled the temple, and the court was full of the radiance of the glory. There's the Shekinah glory. The, the, the temple court is filled with the, the glory of the Lord, and the sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when He speaks. Let, let me just translate there. When God started to move toward the door, it was a great sound. A great sound. Do you know why he's leaving? There, there's, there's multiple things, but if you, if you go and check the, repeated, the repetitive announcements of his departure in the Old Testament, there were always two. Idolatry and the shedding of innocent blood. Idolatry and the shedding of innocent blood. He's going to leave. Now, do you know what happened after the Shekinah glory departed from Jerusalem's temple? Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed Judah and the temple of the Lord. It was 586 B.C. Some 700 years after the time of Ezekiel, the Shekinah glory of God would come again to this world. If you don't hear anything I say tonight, please get this. 700 years after the time of Ezekiel, the Shekinah glory of God was going to come to the earth again, to the world of men, but this time he wouldn't be behind the veil of a Jerusalem temple. It's Jesus. It's the Son of God. This time, he's in flesh. The Where do I get that connection? Um, John 1.14. Listen carefully. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He came from heaven to earth. And we have seen what? His glory. That's the Shekinah glory. We've seen His glory. The glory of the one and only. The glory of God who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So put the sequence of events together. The glory of God leaves the Ezekiel temple. And then he returns 700 years later, but he's not glowing. He's not glowing. He looks like a regular guy. And that's where they struggled. If he'd have been glowing, they might have accepted him. But he wasn't glowing. But John says, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Shekinah glory of God once again appeared on earth through his name prophesied was Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And what does that mean? Matthew 1.23. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, 
and so that there's no translation misunderstanding, which means God with us. The God that was behind the curtain, the God that was in the Garden of Eden, is now standing in Israel in human flesh. Can you imagine? In human flesh. 33 years later, Jesus departed planet earth to sit at the right hand of the, of the Father in heaven. And God sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to dwell on earth until the day that all things will be made new. That brings me to the question for tonight. Can you know, with that background, can you know that you're going to heaven? Can you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Everybody knows what RSVP means. It means respond very promptly. So everyone's not going to heaven. So let, we've talked about that in the first couple of sessions. Here's the truth. Everyone's not going to heaven. There is a false doctrine that is gaining traction in the American churches. It's called universalism. And universalism is the love of God is greater than the sin of man. And eventually, everyone goes to heaven. It's a, it's a false teaching. But it is a, it, you can see why people would like it. Because everybody goes to heaven. But it's not true. It's a deception. So let me begin by saying, if I ask the question, can you know for sure you're going to heaven? Well, that's predicated on the fact that everybody's not going to heaven. In fact, the Bible tells us about the details of entry into the Shekinah presence of God in that glorious place called heaven. Let's go to Revelation 25. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The only way anybody's going to get in there, there's going to be a book. And if your name is in the book, you're in. If your name is not in the book, you're out. And there will be nothing you can do about that in that moment. It's in nothing. So there's an illustration. Uh, let me, in fact, before I read the illustration. So is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? I look around the audience tonight. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? How would you answer that to somebody out in the world? If they ask you that tomorrow at work or wherever you are. Are, are you going to heaven? Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Do you think it's important how you answer that? Can you know for sure that your name is written there? Can you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Can you know for sure that you're going to spend eternity in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God? Can you? Well, there's an illustration that I want to use tonight to answer the question. Ruthanna Metzger, a professional singer, tells a story that illustrates the importance of having our names written in the book. Several years ago, she was asked to sing at a wedding of a very wealthy man. She and her husband, Roy, were very excited about attending. After the wedding, waiters in tuxedos offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages 
the bride and groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. Someone ceremoniously cut a satin ribbon draped across the bottom of the stairs, and they announced the wedding feast. Notice the, the context. The wedding feast was about to begin. Bride and groom ascended the stairs, followed by their guests. At the top of the stairs, a maitre d' with a bound book greeted the guest outside the doors. May I have your name, please? I am Ruthanna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy. He searched the M's. I'm not finding it. Would you spell it, please? Ruthanna spelled her name slowly. After searching the book, the maitre d' looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name isn't here. There must be some mistake, Ruthanna replied. I'm the singer. I sang at this wedding. The gentleman answered, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend this banquet. He motioned for the waiter, motioned to the waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator, please. The Metzgers followed the waiter past beautifully decorated tables <laughs> laden with shrimp, whole smoked salmon, magnificent carved ice sculptures. Adjacent to the banquet area, an orchestra was preparing to perform all dressed in dazzling white tuxedos. The waiter led Ruth Anna and Roy to the service elevator, ushered them in, and pushed G for the parking garage. <coughs> After locating their car and driving several miles in silence, Roy reached over and put his hand on Ruth Anna's arm and said, Sweetheart, what happened? When the invitation arrived, I was busy. Ruth Anna replied, I never bothered to RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without having to return an RSVP. Ruth Anna started to weep, not only because she had missed the most lavish banquet she'd ever been invited to, but also because she suddenly had a small taste of what it will be like someday for people as they stand before Christ and find that their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. <coughs> Throughout the ages, countless people have been too busy to respond to Jesus' invitation to attend the wedding banquet. Many assume that they're good enough. They're the good that they have done, perhaps. In fact, here's how church people think. I attended church. I was baptized. I sang in the choir on the praise team. I served on the welcome team. I even worked in the nursery a couple of times. And they think it'll be enough to gain entry into heaven. But people who do not respond to Christ's invitation to forgive their sins or people whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you understand that his invitation requires a response? His invitation requires a response. To be denied entrance to heaven's wedding banquet will not just mean going down the service elevator to the garage. It will mean being cast outside into hell forever. On that day, no explanation or excuse will count. 
On all that will matter is whether or not our names are written in the book. If they're not, we'll be turned away. It was a few weeks ago that I preached a sermon called Malachi 3.16. And the reason I wrote that sermon is that the, it was near the end, right before the destructions coming to Judah. And God in Malachi basically outlines, outlines his disappointment with Israel. And it says that a group of people, when they confronted the Word of God in Malachi 3.16, when they confronted the Word of God, they, they gathered together and made a covenant. And the covenant was quite simply, um, as, as God heard them talking together, it says that the Lord wrote their names in a book of remembrance. He was writing down their names and he was writing down what they were saying to each other. They didn't realize that as they gathered, God was there listening. And God was there taking notes and writing them down. And it says that he wrote their names in a book of remembrance for two reasons. And in Malachi 3.16, there were two reasons that got their name in the book. They feared God and they lived to honor his name. It was the purpose of their life. They feared God. And they lived to honor him. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, God had a book. Before Jesus ever came, God had a book. Before there was a Lamb's book of life, there was a book of remembrance. And God was writing down their names. So let me ask you a question. Have you sent in your RSVP? Have you been busy? You're planning to get to that one day? I think about it when they send the, sing the invitation at church. But you know what? I'm not so sure. Is that, is that what goes on? You know, I look at the audience sometimes on Sunday morning when we offer an invitation. And I just wonder what's going on in people's heads. I do. I don't know. I just, but I'm curious. So here's the question. Can you know for sure? Yes. And it's not my opinion. It's not my opinion. I don't say this because of some spiritual arrogance. I say this because it is an issue of faith itself. It's faith in the truth of God's Word. It's not spiritual arrogance. It's faith. And let me show it to you. 1 John 5, 10. It says, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony. Now, I really should have given you a couple more verses before that. So let me tell you what that means. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony. What testimony? Well, that would have been the previous verses that I didn't put in there. It says that if you go up a few verses, it says that God has given three witnesses to the authenticity of Jesus. Three witnesses. Three witnesses from God announcing the authenticity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The one is the water, the blood, and the Spirit. Three witnesses. The water, baptism. When John went into, when Jesus was baptized by John, he comes up out of the water, and what happens? God speaks from heaven. This is my son. All right? Testimony number one, water. Testimony number two, blood. It's the cross. On the cross, 
Jesus took on himself all the sins of the world. He became the, and he, in that moment, he sealed the fate of Satan. He, he crushed the serpent's head. Testimony number two is the blood of the cross. Testimony number three is the spirit. Because without the spirit, you would never get number one and number two. You'll never understand the cross and you'll never understand the baptism until you understand the spirit. Because it is the spirit that opens my eyes to see. He opens my ears to hear. He opens my heart to believe, receive, and obey. But these three are the witness testimony of God that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, with that background, anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony, this three-part testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe, okay, not everybody believes. Anyone who does not believe, God has made him out to be a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. What? The water, the blood, and the spirit. You have rejected the spirit. You have rejected the blood. You have rejected the water. You have rejected God's witness testimony. You just called God a liar. What do you think is going to happen? What's going to happen when you call God a liar? You stand before him on the last day. And your life has called him a liar. Verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And he who has the son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? Why does he write them? So that you may know. Can you know? Can you know for sure? So that you can know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that when, that we have what we ask of Him. Now, we can know, based on this scripture, not just this one, we can know we're going to heaven when we die. How comforting is that when you get that diagnosis? That's, that's, get your house in order, your days are short. How big is this? How big is this? That you know that when you, when you close your eyes and that last breath exits your body, that you will awaken in the presence of God. What's the value of that? You can know that if Jesus returns to gather his believers, you're going with him. How comforting is that? Kind of makes you want to live with expectancy. We can know. We can have confidence that God has prepared a place for us. In John 14, he says that I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll receive you unto myself. So that where I am... There you will be also. 
We can be sure that we will dwell forever in the Shekinah presence of God. In the new heaven and the new earth, in paradise. Second Peter 1. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. What does that mean? Is this a casual thing? Uh, I'll send an RSVP next week. I, I, you know what? I'm busy right now. Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Put it in the mail and put 12 stamps on it. You understand? It's not something I'll get to when I get some free time. It's the idea that I'm urgent. I'm urgent. This is important that when I have this calling, that's why it says that today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of rebellion. Do not do it. RSVP, respond. Today is the day you respond. Because the day is the day that the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to the water, to the blood, and to the Spirit's power in your life. So answer Him. Answer Him. Yes, Lord. Respond to Him. Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, what's the context? Eager anticipation. I'm making my calling and election sure. If you do these things, you'll never fall. And you'll receive. You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what would you say if someone came up to you and asked you, are you going to heaven when you die? Would you say maybe? I hope so. I'm not sure. Because a lot of people, even in the church, that's what you're going to say. And, and I get it. There's a part of us that doesn't want to feel arrogant or prideful. So you, you don't want to say, well, sure. It makes you kind of sound a little bit arrogant, doesn't it? John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Perish, eternal life. Perish, eternal life. Perish, eternal life. There's two choices. You have to respond which one of these that you would like to have in your future. You're going to choose perish, or are you going to choose eternal life? But see, God's already given the prize. He's already paid the payment. The world isn't going to be amazed, perplexed, astonished, and astounded by a church that doesn't know where it's going. So when somebody on the outside comes and asks somebody on the inside, are you going to heaven? Are you sure? And you say, I don't know. I don't want to follow you because you don't know where you're going. And we're going to both get lost. The world, in fact, the reason I use those words, amazed, perplexed, astonished, and astounded, is I was reading through the book of Acts, and I kept noticing that those were the words that kept popping up. That the world saw the church, and they were amazed, perplexed, astonished, and astounded. They were blown away by these people. Because they were sure of what they hoped for, and certain of what they could not see. It's the definition of faith in the book of Hebrews. And it makes the world let go, whoa. Now, no disrespect, but, but I don't want to go with someone that doesn't know where they're going. 
So if, you, if I ask you, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? You say, I hope so. Maybe. There's a big difference between spiritual arrogance and spiritual confidence. Big difference. Spiritual arrogance is based on the ability of self to get to heaven. And if you think you're going to get to heaven because you worked in the nursery, Bob Russell calls it pediatric purgatory. Yeah, yeah, preacher, I did a year in pediatric purgatory. I'm going to heaven. If you think you're going to heaven because you, you came to roots, you'd be wrong. There's a spiritual arrogance that thinks that I can get to heaven. I can get my name in the Lamb's Book of Life because of something I did. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But spiritual confidence is different. Spiritual confidence is based on the promise and the ability and the desire of God to take me to heaven. That God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. He did what? He gave his son on the cross so that Terry Cooper would not perish. But I can have eternal life. And all he asks of me is that I put my faith, my life, into the hands of his son. That I believe it. Not a little bit. With all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, everything. And you know what? You can't fake him out because he's God. Nobody's going to fake him out. So are you confident? So let me show you the words confidence. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six scriptures. Ephesians three twelve, in him and through him, in in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Right. So I got confidence that I got confidence that that when I when Jesus came inside of me, when the Holy Spirit entered Terry Cooper's body, entered my life, took possession of me. Jesus became my brother, and if, I, if Jesus is my brother, we got the same father. And if Jesus' father is my father, I can approach him with confidence. He's my Abba. He's my daddy. It's confidence. It's, it's not arrogance. It's confidence. Why? Because I can read Ephesians 3.12. Hebrews 3.14. We have come to share in Christ if... We hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. So I have to continue in this confidence all the way to the finish line. This confidence, what? That, that I put my trust in God. He's got this. I'm going to heaven. All the way to the end. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Confidence, confidence, confidence. Can you be sure? What do you think confidence is? Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 35. So do not throw away your confidence. 
This is happening in much of the American church. Do not throw away your confidence for it will be richly rewarded if you hold on to the end. 1 John 4, 17. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. You can have confidence on the day of judgment. Not arrogance, confidence. My arrogance is based on self. Confidence is based on Him. So when my family took a trip to Destin, Florida in past years, and we've gone there quite a bit over the last bunch of years, I didn't just start driving down the road hoping that one of these roads is going to take me to Florida. Instead, I looked at a map and I charted my course. I did this in advance so that I would be sure that my family would wind up in a place where I wanted to be, which in that case was Destin, Florida. If you want to get somewhere, guesswork is a poor and stupid strategy. And if you ask people, do you want to go to heaven? Everybody's going to say, yeah, unless you're a nut. And then you ask them, where's the map and how do you plan to get there? And suddenly their eyes glaze over with universalism. As if somehow everybody's going to just somehow fall into heaven. It's not going to happen. The goal of getting to heaven is the most important thing you will ever plan in your lifetime. And many people spend more time planning their summer vacations than planning their eternal destination. So let me get practical, okay? It's, it's really wrong for me to do what I did without having some practical application. So here we go. I, I, I want you to listen very carefully. So how do I RSVP? Okay, preacher, you got my attention. How do I RSVP? How do I respond to Jesus' invitation to join him at the wedding supper of Lamb in heaven? I'm going to be real simple and real practical. This is a brief summary of how to respond to God's offer of mercy and forgiveness. This is God's revealed truth. And I'm going to get into some detail. After I give you the four, I will go through each one individually. So listen up. There is no believing without following. Faith is not an intellectual event. There is no believing. So faith is believing, okay? It's a pretty generic term, believing. Faith is believing. But there is no believing without following. I'm going to prove it to you. The father of our faith, the definition of faith in the Bible is Abrahamic faith. Right? It's in here. He's the, he's the pattern of faith, saving faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. He's the pattern of faith. So God comes to Abraham and says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, take him to the region of Moriah, build an altar, put him on it, stick a knife in him, kill him and set him on fire. Would Abraham have faith without taking Isaac to Moriah? No. It's not faith. He believed God. He believed God. You think he didn't believe God? He believed God. He encountered God. He believed God. But you have to follow God. 
Ooh, there's a hush in the room right now. You have to follow him. It's not just about some intellectual, sure, I believe in God. Okay. There is no believing without following. Number two, there is no forgiveness without repentance. It's not possible. If you think you can, you've made it up. It's not in here. Number three, there is no salvation without surrender. And number four, there is no life without death. One of the reasons that I believe God has so moved in this church in 24 years. Listen, listen. this church has experienced, we, had a, we, we dealt with this two weeks ago in a staff we, we traveled somewhere together. And, and for 24 years, this church has experienced nonstop growth. 24 years, nonstop growth. We give him praise. We give him praise. But I, I want to explain just a, a portion of why. So if somebody, and they do, people ask me, how? How, how does a church go through 24 years of growth? We've baptized in those 24 years uh, close to 1,100 people. 1,100 people. How? One of the reasons I am so convinced God has moved in this church is we've never sold Jesus cheap. Never have we sold Jesus cheap. No such thing as cheap grace because death is expensive. We have never cheapened this. We have never marketed this in a marshmallow version that's easier to swallow. We just pour it out straight up. Let it do what it does. Just let it do what it does. So tonight when I say, when I say there's no believing without following and the room gets really quiet and nobody moves anymore, that's the opposite of cheap grace. That's a sobering, convicting truth. And it's heavy. But you know what? Life and death is heavy. Heaven and hell is heavy. Judgment day is heavy. And not everybody's going to heaven. It's heavy. So let me go through the four. There's no believing without following. 1 John 2 verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk, must walk as Jesus did. You, you, when he says, follow me, it is not an ideology. It is not an ideology. It is your life. And if you follow him, if you become a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, he told you in advance, the world will hate you. They will hate you because you're not even walking in the same direction they are. They're walking that way and you're going this way. There is no believing without following. 24 years ago, or actually it was 22 years ago. I was two years here bivocational before I quit my job. I believed God, but he very clearly communicated he wanted me to quit my job and go into ministry full time. I had to decide. There's no believing without following. I, I had to follow him. He had something he wanted me to do. And I didn't have to guess, by the way. If you're having to guess, stop, because it's not him. But I knew what he wanted me to do. I had to, I had to 
I had to believe that he is who he says he is. I had three kids under the age of 16, stay-at-home wife. In a comfortable career, I could have coasted the rest of my life. But you know what he said? Quit your job. Take a church that had 27 people. That had 27 people. And they can't pay you. There is no believing without following. I'm not setting myself up as some kind of example. I'm just telling you that he's got plans for all of us. I hope you all don't quit your job. I do. I hope you don't quit your job. But I hope you follow him if he asks you to. Number two, there's no forgiveness without repentance. Jesus said, these are words of Jesus, I tell you, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Unless you repent. It, it, repentance is not sorry you got caught. One of the best illustrations of that is this. <clears throat> I believe God's grace, he offers to anyone on earth who will turn around and face him. But the problem with humanity is we would like to receive, let's use a football analogy again, that we would like to receive the grace of God over our left shoulder as we walk away from him. We'd like to do this, Lord, here, here, I'll catch your grace. I'll catch it while I'm, I'm, I'm going this way. But he's over here. And he said, no, 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 no. I will give you my grace when you turn around. When you face me. You face me. You come face to face with who you are and who I am. Turn around. Repentance is that moment in your life when you know that sin has got your back to him. But that sin is so comfortable that I'd like the grace, but I want him to cast it right over that left shoulder. And I'll catch that baby right here as I'm walking away from you. He ain't going to throw it. And you're going to end up down here somewhere, and he's over here. Turn around. Repentance is the physical and spiritual act of turning around and facing God. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But you got to confess it. You don't confess it as you're walking away from him. You confess it when you turn around and face him. Number three, there is no salvation without surrender. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I like to, okay, uh, I told you all that I used to go to Japan a lot. I think I went to Japan 25 times when I was in the business world. And I've been all over the world, literally. I've been all over Europe, all over Asia. I have literally traveled the world. And no matter where I have ever been in the world, this means the same thing. What's it mean? It don't mean howdy. It means what? It means I give up. I surrender. And I was in the military, so obviously you know what it means in the military. You really pay attention in the military. So, so it means I surrender. The fact is there is no life, excuse me, there is no salvation without surrender. 
And when I say surrender, it is a white flag up the pole without negotiation surrender. And let me tell you what that means. With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, you raise the white flag and you lay it down in front of him while you look at him, while you face him. You take a white piece of paper and hand it to him and you say, you fill in the rest of my life. It's surrender. You die to yourself. You surrender to him. You don't negotiate terms of surrender. He already gave you the terms of surrender. Everything in exchange for your life. Everything in exchange for your life. It's a good deal. Everything for, for your life. That's why he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Crawl up on the altar and lay down. Living sacrifice. If you don't get on the altar, you'll be a dead sacrifice. You're going to die. Last one. There is no life without death. There's no life without death. Matthew 10, 38. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's why Jesus says you must be willing to die to yourself to be born again. In fact, let me make a practical application to that. If you, you cannot be born again until you die. If you could be born again without dying, there'd be two of you. Let that sink in for a moment. There'd be two of you. If you're born again and the original you is still here, there's two of you. The spiritual picture is that when you are born again, the first you dies. A spiritual death. When you get up on that altar, you die a spiritual death. Then, and that's the, the your death is, you, you're subtracted from the Adam genealogy, the curse. And you are now inserted into the Jesus genealogy of life. You change families. But you got to die. You know why people don't come forward in invitation when they're convicted? They don't want to die. But you will die without him. It's not cheap. It's not cheap grace. None of this is cheap. And, and let me ask you this. Um, what's the value of your soul? What would you sell your soul for? What, how much? A million dollars? Would you sell your soul for a million dollars? Would you sell your soul for a Hollywood career? To be a sports star? Would you sell your soul? Matthew 16, Jesus says, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So here's my closing tonight. I am saved by grace through faith. My faith comes by hearing the word of God. And by the way, Jesus is the word of God. He is the holy seed, which is the word. When I heard the word, I believed it, all of it. That was the original calling God made in my life in 1988, sitting at Corinth Christian Church. The Holy Spirit said, either you believe it all or you believe none of it. And tonight you'll decide. That was it. He broke me. In the moment, he broke me. 
Either you believe it or it was as clear to me as my voice right now. Nobody around me heard it, but I know what he said. Either you believe it or you believe none of it. And I knew what he meant. This. You wonder why I stand up here and say, I believe that what I hold in my hand is the only physical source of absolute truth on this earth. Because that was the defining moment of my life. That was it. I heard the word. I believed it. All of it. I have, and I hope you can say this too, I have confessed with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. He is who he says he is. I have confessed my sins to God, and I have asked for his forgiveness. What am I doing? How do I RSVP? How do I respond to this invitation? I have confessed my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I've confessed my sins and asked for forgiveness. I have repented of those sins and asked for the power to overcome them permanently. I have turned around and I am facing him, not walking away from him. I was baptized and born again by the water and the spirit of Christ. I now live under the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. The life-giving spirit person of Jesus Christ lives inside of Terry Cooper right now. This moment, he is inside of me. I cannot do any of this. I cannot understand any of this apart from the spirit. It is him. It is Christ at work in me. I already have eternal life. Here's my favorite thing. I already have eternal life, Christ in me. I'm just waiting for a new body to put it in. And I mean that. I mean that. By his grace, I will stand firm till the end. Stand by faith with confidence till the end. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. Because I have RSVP'd to Jesus' invitation to attend the wedding banquet. This next scripture is painted in front of my desk in my office on the wall. Painted. Here's what it says. I am still confident in this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart, take heart and wait for the Lord. I painted it on the wall. I will see the Shekinah glory of God in the place called heaven. And I'm asking you, will you? I will not answer for you and you will not answer for me. Do you know for sure today that you're going to heaven? There's not one thing that I have told you tonight that you are unable to do. Do you know that? Not one thing that you can't do. God has made it within our reach. One more thing. The Shekinah glory. Listen, this will be a good closing. The Shekinah glory of God is coming again. I told you of the departure of the Shekinah glory of God from the Jerusalem temple in the time of Ezekiel. I'm going to read one of the details of the departure of the Shekinah glory that I didn't read to you earlier. So let's go to verse 18. And then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. And while I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. Now, what I'm trying to communicate is where is he exiting from? The east. He's going out the eastern gate. And the glory of God of Israel was above them. So he exited the temple before Nebuchadnezzar came and burned it down. He left through the east gate. The eastern gate. Anybody want to guess which gate Jesus went through 700 years later on Palm Sunday before he died? The eastern gate. 
the glory of God came back. But this time in human flesh. And you've seen his glory. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Did you know that the same book of Ezekiel tells of the return of Jesus for us today? Did you know that? Do you want to guess which gate he's coming to? Ezekiel 44. Then the man brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and it was shut. Ezekiel is seeing the future temple, and the gate was shut. The Lord said to me, this gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. Zechariah chapter 14 and the book of Acts chapter 1 both tell us that Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. And if you know anything about the Mount of Olives, it sits uh, on top of a hill on the east side of the old city of Jerusalem. In fact, from the Mount of Olives, you look straight down at the eastern gate, straight down. And Jesus is going to return to the Mount of Olives. He's going to stand His feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. I'm going to read it to you. And he's going to walk down the Kidron Valley and up and through the Eastern Gate. Do you believe that? Zechariah 14. On that day, and I need to tell you, I I didn't do something again. If I read verse 1, 2, and 3 before I do that one, on that day, you know what's happening on this day? It's a prophetic day of our future. Israel is at war. The houses are being ransacked and the women are being raped. Go read Zechariah 1, 2, and 3. The houses are being ransacked and the women are being raped. What's happening in Israel right now? On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Now, this is from Dr. David Reagan regarding the time when the first, when he first began researching the Eastern Gate and reading from the old Encyclopedia Britannica. And here's what he wrote. It said that no one knows for sure why this Eastern Wall was closed But the best story is that when these walls were being rebuilt in the 1500s by Muslim Solomon, the Magnificent, that a rumor swept Jerusalem that the Messiah was coming. And Suleiman called the Jewish rabbis in and asked, what does this mean? And they replied, when the Messiah comes, he's going to come from the east and he's going to go through the eastern gate and he's going to run you aliens out. And he is going to become the Messiah, and he's going to be the ruler over all the earth. The rabbis were dismissed, and the order was given, seal up the eastern gate. Put a Muslim cemetery in front of it, and that will take care of the Messiah, because he won't walk in a Muslim cemetery, and he can't go through a gate that is closed. That's what they think. So I've been over there three times. All three times I went to the eastern gate, and the eastern gate is closed, sealed, filled with rubble. And just a few feet from the eastern gate is a Muslim cemetery where dead bodies are buried everywhere. And they had the idea in the 1500s that somehow or another that would stop the 
the, the Messiah from coming in and ruling the earth. Heaven's coming. Now today, when I was doing my final study of tonight's session, I thought to myself, Zechariah 14, 4, on that day, his feet will stand. Israel will be at war. In fact, if you read all of that text, Israel will be at the end of itself. They will be near annihilation. In fact, it will look like they have no hope that they're going to be totally annihilated, destroyed by enemy armies that have surrounded them. And Jesus will come and stand on the Mount of Olives. And with the breath of his mouth, he will destroy the invading armies. Now, isn't it curious that, isn't it possible, is it possible that the events of October 7th are the prelude, the forerunner, who knows how long it'll last, to Zechariah 14? Maybe it'll be a hundred years from now. But I'll tell you, it's closer today than it was yesterday. So I want to close like we did before. I want all of you to get your paper and let's read it together. You ready? Since then, I have been raised with Christ. I will set my heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I will set my mind on things above, not on earthly things. For I died, and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is my life, appears, then I will also appear with him in glory. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for these promises. Make us strong and very courageous. Use us to shine the light in the darkness while we wait for your return. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.